The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Roger Wiegan, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying?, what is Chen selling? We do have a special introductory offer to all three newsletters. Well, I should say each separately. You can subscribe uh, one time only, uh, a trial subscription to each of those letters separately uh, by going to miningstocks.com, that's M-I-N-I-N-G-S-T-O-C-K-S.com, or go to uh, call our, my assistant in New York, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426. That's 718 718- Four five seven one four two six. Actually, the best website to go to uh, from now on t- for everything that I do and my partners do uh, is J Taylor Media. That's J A Y T A Y L O R Media dot com. There you can access this radio show. You can access all three newsletters as well as uh, uh, various videos that I've done with uh, CEO interviews. Uh, also, many appearances that I have made at CNBC, Fox, and BNN. We want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. And for the first hour of today's show, they are Crocodile Gold Corp., Go West Limited, Trevale Mining Corporation, Intertopia Corporation, Smash Minerals, Ariga Gold Corp., uh, Sand Gold Corp., and Palangio Explorations. This week I'm talking to you from the New York Hard Assets Conference here on Times Square in New York City. Uh, It is a most exciting time in the mining industry for sure, but as we have seen lately, it is also a very volatile time. Uh, Stock prices can move up and down very rapidly, uh, and that is because more and more our economy is a bubble economy. In other words, it is a phony economy based not on savings and investment and real wealth, but on artificial stimulus by pumping new money into the system 
uh, monetary stimulus as well as Keynesian stimulus, that is deficit spending and then printing money to pay for that rather than taxing people. That's the Keynesian formula. It's been put into practice more and more over the years and over the decades, and it is leading to major, major problems because, as I pointed out in a presentation that I've made here at the New York Heart Asset Conference, we're seeing a massive growth in the total amount of debt, and that debt simply cannot be repaid. It's too great relative to the income that's being, uh, that, that is being uh, generated in this sicker and sicker economy. Unsound economics persuades people that they can have what they want when they want it without working and saving. This falsehood, uh, I believe, has led America and the West in general into a, into a debt-to-income relationship, as I was just saying, that is totally unsustainable. Exponential growth in debt, linear at best, a rate of growth in income, and I would argue that the income is being grossly overstated right now by the uh, by the um, uh, by the U.S. government because they are understating inflation. And uh, the way it works, of course, is the higher the inflation rate, they they uh, reduce the GDP uh, to account for that. So we're looking at GDP as supposed to be a real growth number, not a nominal growth number. So my view is, and certainly the view of John Williams, who's been on this show, the view is that uh, that the economy is probably still in a recession. That it's never really come out of the recession. But if you take the one or two or three percent inflation rate that the government would have you believe is the real inflation rate, then you can make a case that we have very tepid growth in the economy, but certainly nothing vigorous enough to wipe out unemployment. The unemployment rate remains stubbornly high. And there again, if you were to use the same accounting measures as John Williams talks about, as was used during the 1930s, we'd be looking at something 12, 14, 16% unemployment, rather than the kind of unemployment numbers that were uh, being given by the government. Now, what's going to have to happen is there's going to be a wealth process, uh, a wealth wiping out process. Uh, And so we're going to have to see a major decline uh, I think a lot of wealth is going to be wiped out either through hyperinflation or through a deflationary depression. And uh, that is one of the most interesting questions, and I think most relevant questions that we all need to ask right now. Uh, so my advice, though, uh, given this volatility that we're seeing in the markets, I've been telling people that, and my subscribers that they should take money off the table, they should reduce uh, and, and have cash ready because if we have a contraction here, if we see another major decline in prices, which I think is very possible, if that occurs, then the mining shares will get hit very hard along with everything else. If you have some cash, you can buy those shares at very low prices and you'll be in a position to do very, very well because I believe that the real, econ- that the real price of gold will rise as it did after Lehman Brothers and and will be in a very, very strong position to buy gold mining shares at bargain basement prices. Well, this week we are going to be talking to Richard Mayberry. He is our main guest. Uh, you'll love what Richard has to say about the geopolitical situation, about Keynesian economics, about where we are at now. Uh, we will also be talking in just a moment, as soon as the first break, I'm going to be talking to Robert McAllister. He's the president and CEO of Intertopia. That's a company exploring an exciting copper and silver prospect in New Mexico. In the second hour of today's show, uh, after we finish with Richard Mayberry, he will be uh, our one main guest. Frank Callahan of the Barkerville Gold Mines, a sponsor of this show, will be with me, uh, and he'll be talking about the progress of his company uh, there in British Columbia. 
uh, as they produce gold and have growth prospects uh, going forward, massive growth prospects. And sort of interesting to note, I spoke to Ian Gordon here earlier today uh, who is at this show, and Ian says that's his number one pick uh, is Barkerville Gold Lines. Uh, finally, uh, in the, to wrap up today's show, Roger Wiegand will be with me, uh, and Roger will ask Roger for his views on the market as well. Well, it's time to go to break. Right after that, uh, Robert McAllister of Entertopia will talk about his copper-silver prospect in New Mexico. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Robert McAllister. experts here. Voice America Business Network. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Entertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Entertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CNN. SX Exchange. Trevally Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Trevally trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love and ride. 
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm pleased to have with me Robert McAllister. He is the president and CEO of Entertopia Corporation, trades on the CNSX exchange in Canada under the symbol TOP, and over-the-counter in the United States under the symbol, symbol ENRT. Stock traded at about 30 cents this past week, and uh, with 24 million shares outstanding, it gives it a market cap of only about $7 million. The company does have around 600000 Dollars of cash in the till. Welcome, Robert, to turning hard times into good times. Welcome, Jay. It's good to be here today and speak with you about the Copper Hills project and Entertopia in general. Well, Entertopia in general is a new story, and we like to pick up new stories on this show because new stories very often are very undervalued. If no one's heard about it, um, you know, there's no. It's a lot of times not many people buying the shares. So, part of the purpose of this show is to bring such stories to light. So let's get into your story. We know, I know that you are involved to a certain extent with solar energy, uh, but I think your primary focus now is in the mining sector, and uh, specifically you have a lead project uh, called the Copper Hill Project. Uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that story? Yes, Copper Hills was uh, brought to us by a mine finder by the name of Christian Ross, who used to be the president of Red Hawk Resources, and he brought them a copper project a few years back when the company had a market cap of $2 million, and today Red Hawk has a market cap approaching $100 million. So we're very excited that uh, we've been able to acquire a project that has uh, his stamp of approval on it. Right. Yes, I know Chris, uh, Chris Ross. He's done very well. I've, I've known him years ago. When, in fact, he was involved with a gold mine, putting a gold mine into production in northern British Columbia. He is a very... A very successful man, a, a very ethical person, and I have the highest regards. So, you know, that's always important too to deal with people that have uh, good ethics and are and have good track records and competence. So, uh, certainly, that's a good starting point from from what I know. Robert, can you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, this property? Some of the assays actually were were pretty pretty good um, from this property. Could you talk about that? Yes, back in the 1950s, there was a bulk sample taken of one of the outcrops, and it was 356 tons that graded 3 ounces of silver and 0.8% copper per ton. So as an adder near-surface deposit, if we can uh, prove up those numbers with uh, reverse circulation drilling going forward, we have a very good uh, economic, what could be an economic project with today's metals prices for sure. Sure, and uh, Robert, can you tell us a little bit about the what you know about the dimensions on the surface of this of this outcrop? Uh, Jay, it's outcropped in uh, two areas and appears to be about 250 meters by 400 meters in size. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't know how it slopes down. Uh, there were five uh, air percussion holes drilled into the deposit, uh, spaced on uh, I believe it was 25 meter spacing, and they all intersected. What the author said were was visible uh, material similar to what was uh, pulled out in the bulk sample. So, uh, you know, it had the uh, copper oxide malachite staining 
in in, uh, in the drill hole. So we're excited that uh, we believe there's something there, and that's why we're there. Right. So you have a drill program that you're going to put into effect uh, sometime this year. Uh, talk about that, and what is the purpose of that drill program? Uh, the purpose of the drill program will be to test the uh, the oxide cap to confirm that the uh, copper-silver uh, enriched zone does indeed contain, uh, you know, economic mineralization because we're, we're at Copper Hills to find an economic deposit to mine is our, is our plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, the listeners can really sort of just talk about or think about what might be, and we might underscore, we need to underscore the word might be because you never know until the truth machine, as they call it, the drill, uh, the, the drill goes into the deposit to find out what is really there and then statistically be able to infer that. But if we're looking at eight-tenths of a percent copper and three ounces of silver per ton, people know the copper price uh, at current prices uh, around close to $4 for copper and I guess $35 for silver. It's uh, Yeah, it, it looks like a pretty good per ton value if those numbers hold up. But could you talk to us, uh, Robert, a little bit about the values, uh, you know, how that might compare if those values hold up with some of the other copper projects that are out there, copper, silver, whatever projects that are out there? That's a great question, Jay. Uh, there was a report done last fall by CIBC, and it, it ranked the top 25 copper exploration mining companies by copper equivalent grades. So that's copper plus any associated minerals, so it could be silver or gold and other deposits. And the grade that they came up with the average grade was 0.65%. So we know at Copper Hills we're running what appears to be 0.8% copper with three ounces silver. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if the truth machine does in fact uh, return those same historic numbers on the property or something close to that, we would be in the top tier of uh, copper exploration companies by grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, that's very interesting. So I mean, this gives some really some real upside potential. Again, we want to underscore it's you know it's uh, it's speculative. This is a very speculative story at this point in time. But you do have the money in the till, I believe, uh, Robert, to finance your drill program, right? That's right. We currently have about six hundred thousand dollars in the till. Uh, we'll be spending one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars in a couple months on a IP uh, induced polarization survey to test for potential uh, deeper sulfide targets. And then the first phase of reverse circulation drilling program of 16 holes and some more sampling will cost about $225,000. What do you, uh, so there are sulfide potential, there is a sulfide potential there and that's what you're gonna check, but I believe if I'm not wrong, your emphasis will be on the oxides at first because you could probably uh, create a an economic deposit, uh, lower capex and and lower operating cost with an open pit uh, oxide operation. Is that right? That's correct, Jay. Definitely, our, our priority at Copper Hills is to outline an economic uh, oxide deposit. And uh, like you said, the Truth Machine will let us know if if those grades. Uh, are consistent over what we need to develop as uh, enough tonnage for a mine. Robert, have you just have you come up with any sort of notion about how much oxide material you might need uh, to make an economic deposit there, or is that something you maybe not not thought about yet? Uh, well, we've thought about it, but um, you know, there's some comparables out there. There's a mining company called uh, Revit Minerals, and they have an underground. Uh, they're in production. Uh, they produce 4,000 tons a day, so about 1.2 million tons a year. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they're running, their grades are actually 0.44% copper mm-hmm. and one silver, and they're making money. So uh, we, that gives us a benchmark to look at. Mm-hmm. And are they in, where are they located? They are in Idaho. In Idaho, okay. Yeah. All right, and I think you're, uh, one of the things we always need to discuss when we look at companies like yours or any mining company is infrastructure. What's the infrastructure like there? We're right off uh, the main highway, US 60, which runs uh, east-west through uh, Socorro, New Mexico, and we're on the west, just west of Magdalena, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So infrastructure would not be an issue in this case. Uh, there's roads right to the site currently. Power? Uh, like- power and fiber optics run along highway US 60, so there's, mm-hmm. uh, again, that's not an issue. And water is not a problem? Uh, haven't we haven't uh, had any uh, reports of water being a problem as yeah. well? Okay, well that's a very interesting. Let's. I need to ask you a little bit about the uh, about your solar energy story as well. Tell our listeners about uh, what you're doing in that field. We have uh, a clean energy division, and uh, our chief technology officer, Mark Snyder, out of uh, San Diego, California, has been in the business for over 30 years. Uh, he's a, he was on the uh, Clinton Lighthouse Council for the Y2K program and helped out the administration back then. And for the last 10 years, he's been working on prototypes, taking off-the-shelf technology and improving it. And they've just announced on May 4th that they've finished, completed a prototype uh, standalone unit for Navajo Nation for um, people who are off the grid. There's 20,000 uh, people who live off the grid and have no running water or power in the Navajo Nation in Arizona. Hmm. And these uh, structures are an 8 by 20 foot structure that they includes composting toilets, sink and shower, and water catchment. So now for the first time in their lives, these people have electricity and water that they can have a shower instead of always having to bring in bottled water even to have a shower. It's, oh. uh, it's pretty amazing in this day and age. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yes, it's sort of... Um strange that a place like in the United States that would still exist. Uh, let, let me, uh, so uh, are there some synergies though I believe potentially with the mining sector using this uh, solar technology? Yes, we've run some numbers for some major mining companies and uh, depending on the location of the mine and the size of the mine, uh, our numbers show that there can be a 20% to 35% uh, savings on energy from the actual uh, processing of the ore. Mm-hmm. And that can be very big because energy can be a major a major cost component for many mining projects. I think probably one of the one of the base, one of the most basic ones. So that's a very interesting story. Uh, I think you have going there, um, Robert. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before we part company this time? Uh, Jay, I think you know for more information. Uh, we have a banner on your website, so that's probably the easiest way for your listeners to get to our uh, website at Entertopia.com. Uh, they can feel free to call me anytime at uh, area code two five zero seven six five six four two two. All right, two five zero seven six five six four two two. Well, I want to thank you very much, Robert. Um, it's a really an interesting story, and I think you know people take a look at companies when they're selling, you know, with market caps below ten million dollars, with potential, like it seems you have, and we underscore the word potential because nothing is sure in this business. That's that is for sure. 
but I want to thank you very much for telling your story to our listeners. And uh, folks, don't go away because we're going to be right back with uh, Richard Mayberry. Richard believes the prospects for a hyperinflation are very great at this point in time, unfortunately. But he is also hopeful that the troubles we are facing could lead to some better times, maybe lead us back to the kind of government that our founding fathers planned for us. Don't go away. Richard Mayberry will be with us right after the break. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Dravali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Dravali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. This program is brought to you by Sandgold at www.sandgold.ca. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top 10 gold mining region. Sandgold continues to show tremendous exploration success. With two mines already in production, the company is now revealing a new gold mining trend. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www. .sandgold.ca Voice America Business Network The bottom line in business Welcome to the human race Some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm very pleased to have with me today our main guest, Richard Mayberry. Richard is, this is his second time on our show, and he is the publisher of U.S. and World Early Warning Report for Investors. He has written several entry-level, common-sense books on United States economics, law, and history. His writing style is mostly in an epistolary form, usually as an uncle writing to his nephew, answering questions. Mayberry had taught economics in high school. Failing to find a book with a clear uh, explanation of economics, he wrote one himself. Some of his books include Uncle Eric's uh, talks about personal uh, career and financial security, and that's a book that is basically the foundation for his other books about the model perspective, Higher Law, Whatever Happened to Penny Candy, Uh, a book that explains the history of the United States economic model and how it was based on free market Austrian economics and Whatever Happened to Justice. That's a book about the naturalist philosophical viewpoints regarding the foundations of America's legal system, British common law, the law of the Franks, and the early Christian Ireland. Welcome, uh, Richard, back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks, Jay. I'm glad to be here. Really honored to have you back because I find your views and understanding of history to have been a fantastic help to me personally and, and, and by extension, I guess, to my subscribers as well. I'd like to start out with a basic discussion on your view that you shared with the, uh, that really uh, is, is in tune with the Founding Fathers, namely that the best government is the least government. You explained at the Wealth Protection Conference in Phoenix a couple of weeks ago uh, that there are just a couple of basic laws that people need to observe in order to prosper and live peacefully with one another. Would you care to share that with our listeners? Uh, yeah. Um, there are two laws that are taught by all religions. Uh, they express the laws in different ways from one religion to the other, but they all teach two laws. And one of those is do all you have agreed to do, and that's the basis of contract law. Mm-hmm. And then religions also teach the second law, which is do not encroach on other persons or their property. And that's the basis of tort law and some criminal law. And all religions teach these um, and that's why these two laws became, back in the Middle Ages, they became the foundation of the old British common law. Uh, common meant the laws common to everybody. Um, that you, a judge could hear a case uh, in, in which there are people from different parts of the country or different parts of the world even, and he would know that if he based his decisions on those two laws that he would have a set of principles that he could go by that everyone would agree with. Um, and uh, the, the, the old British common law grew up one case at a time through the Middle Ages, and by the time you get to the, uh, the American Revolution in 1776, the general population in America was pretty familiar with the old British common law. They actually considered it to be a form of history, and they would study the law as history of their um, of their country, and after the American Revolution, the founders were setting up a new government, and they uh, based it on the fundamental principles of the old British common law. And uh, you find the especially the law do not encroach on other persons or their property that runs all through the Bill of Rights. Uh, those two laws are the foundation essentially of the American legal system as it was created back then. 
Um, and then, unfortunately, in the mid-1800s, socialism began to rear its ugly head. And by the time you get to around the middle of the 20th century, the common law has been pretty much erased from the memories of the American people. And uh, most people don't know anything about it anymore, even though it was the, the foundation of the country, essentially. Um, a good point here, kind of on a tangent, is that a, uh, an economic system is the result of its legal system. Mm-hmm. And, and America became the most free and prosperous land ever known because its legal system was based on the old British common law. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the uh, British common law began to be eliminated, then, uh, you know, capitalism went with it, <laughs> sure. essentially. And um, I, in my opinion, um, Pretty much all of America's economic economic problems today can be traced back to the elimination of the common law foundation from the American legal legal system and um, this you know legal catastrophe that we've got now that's called a legal system, but but it isn't really a system at all. Um, and uh, I think that's all I've got to say on that right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would I would invite uh, you had some comments on this. It's very interesting that you can boil down a just society to just a couple of very basic uh, items. And of course, if we were to do that, Richard, we would eliminate a big part of our GDP, which is lawyers and um, court <laughs> systems and so forth. And then those people would be free to actually do something that might that might create wealth for the rest of us. But uh, I guess maybe I'm dreaming a little bit. We have to we have to see uh, some major changes, a revolution, maybe back to the founding fathers, and a and and an understanding of those basic rights. I might just mention to our listeners that, in fact, uh, Richard can be heard his his uh, speech at the. Wealth Protection Conference can be heard, uh, along with some other great speakers that were there. Uh, Ian McAvity, Arch Crawford was there, Sinclair No, Jim Lyles, Roger Wiegand, and yours truly um, were all speakers there. And there is a CD available that uh, those of you who listen to this show and want to know more about what Richard has to say and other speakers there can uh, call the number at Resource Consultants, and that's 800 494 4149. 800 494 4149, uh, or you can go to the website at buysilvernow.com, buysilvernow.com. Richard, you noted that uh, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and other founding fathers warned us against getting involved in the affairs of Europe. Now we are involved in more than maybe 140 countries. Who knows how many countries we're involved in. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems very much involved, I would guess, and believe in the destabilization efforts in the Middle East of the recent months. Uh, Why was Washington and others so concerned that we not get involved in the foreign affairs of other nations? Well, you know, one reason is that the American founders, you know, the Americans in general back in those days uh, realized that they were embarking on a, a political experiment that was a very, very rare thing in history, and that is to create a government and a legal system based on ethical rules, on, on the difference between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And they were aware that very, very few other countries in all of history have ever been based on a set of principles. Most countries are just 
a collection of, or you know, a, a mass of real estate that's dominated by a government that really consists of a bunch of gangsters, and they were trying to to stay away from the gangster model. You know, that's what <laughs> that's what royalty is. They're a bunch of gangsters. Yeah. Um, I I always get enraged uh, at things like the royal wedding here that we saw recently and yeah. all of that. Yeah. You know, royalty was just a bunch of gangsters. Um, the the royal family in Britain today, um, they are living off of the, who knows how how many many millions of dollars worth of loot that was stolen from people all over the world that their ancestors had conquered. Um, and that even today, you know, the, the royal family gets something like 80, I think it's $83 million a year from the taxpayers. Hmm. Um, it's, you know, they're just a bunch of very successful thieves. That's what royalty is. Mm-hmm. Well, the founders didn't want to have anything to do with that. They knew how corrupt governments were, and they were trying to make a fresh start here on this new continent. And so a big part of, of their desire for being uninvolved with these other governments it was the desire to not be contaminated by these other governments. Now, I should point out, you know, they're often accused of being isolationist, um, which is simply not true. They wanted to be divorced from the other governments, but they uh, wanted to have uh, free trade uh, commerce with with the people in other lands, the private citizens, and they were emphatic about that. And an awful lot of the early U.S. economy was a uh, import export economy, where they were uh, dealing with people in other countries. It was the governments that they wanted to be separate from, not not the populations of those countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, as you were talking about, uh, you get enraged by the royal weddings and so forth. I thought, what a great propaganda machinery, though, is set in place because this makes it look as if these are so respectable, these people. They are so yeah. much caring about us. They really right. have our best interest at heart. And my goodness, aren't they refined? Aren't they something that we should all strive to be like? <laughs> yeah, right. and, uh, and, and, you know, we, it goes to another uh, guest I've had on this show, Dmitry Orloff, who is an engineer and grew up uh, during, the, during the days of the of perestroika and the destruction of the Soviet Union. He talked about the propaganda machine in the United States where you have well-dressed people from Harvard and Yale and Princeton and so forth on television with PhDs behind their name talking, and they're so respectable and they're so so good-looking and they everything, and you say, how could you question these people? Uh, they, they, they must know what they're talking about. They have PhDs behind their name. And, um, and Orloff says that he thinks our propaganda machine is far, far superior to anything that the Soviet Union had because he said in the Soviet Union when you saw the hammer and sickle on the wall, you knew they were thugs because they carried that thuggery out in broad daylight, uh, whereas he says in the United States and in the West, uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty well obscured uh, what's really going on behind the scenes. I mean, you talked about a bunch of thugs. Surely, Richard, you're not suggesting that our government is made up of thugs, are you? <laughs> well, a uh, few months ago, I did an article about that, and I, I talked some about um, my experiences in the Air Force during the 1960s. Um, I was in a special operations squadron, and part of our job, as with all special operations troops, is to, or was to train the troops 
of the dictators in Latin America that were allied with Washington. And I can remember, I was young and extremely naive about politics, and I had been told, you know, we're down there training these troops in order to protect these countries against communism. Mm-hmm. We're, we're heroes. We're protecting them. And uh, I can remember being in these countries uh, after a while and realizing these people hate us. And, and you know, well, we're supposed to be here protecting them. Why do they hate us? <laughs> and I, of course, found out that the U.S. government wasn't allied with the people of those countries. It was allied with the governments of those countries that were terrorizing these people. And we were essentially training these troops to keep those governments in power and to help those governments continue to terrorize their own people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, those people hated us. It, it was, um, you know, a quite logical thing. And that's still very much the case around the world. The U.S. troops are sent off to these far countries, and the troops aren't told anything about the real politics. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just uh, ordered to uh, train somebody else's troops, show them how to use the weapons and all, and they, the, the Americans follow their orders. They have no idea you know, what they're really doing there. Mm. Yeah, I, I think uh, what you're talking to me now about uh, reminds me so much of another guest we've had on this show, John Perkins, uh, who's written the book Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and his job as a hitman was to go down and convince the dictators of those third world countries that they needed to take an IMF loan or a World Bank loan, get the countries hopelessly in debt so they had to sell their raw materials to the United States. Do you see this as sort of a... Let's let's call it uh, economic fascism, where where we have you know the corporate interests tied in with the government and the military actions to enforce these dictators, uh, the power to uh, to underpin uh, and to help them stay in power, as part of a corporate interest. Well, um, in a way, yes, I think you're absolutely right. When I was down there, it was uh, uh, United Fruit. Um, and that was the corporation that was um, trying to manipulate things. You know, you know, and what what goes on essentially is these American corporations, which are run by people who are just as naive about politics as I was when I was down there. Um, they go and they invest their money in these uh, these other countries where conditions are horrible, and um, then they realize once they're in there that the gangsters that run these countries are going to bleed them dry. And um, so they start looking for some kind of protection against that. And they run to Washington, and they make some sort of deal in Washington to get Washington to protect their investment that they've foolishly made in these other countries. And, and so, you know, by that means these corporations wind up in bed with the U.S. government, and it just gets more crooked <laughs> all the time. It's yeah. just astounding how, how quickly and easily humans get corrupted when they get into politics. Mm-hmm. Well, and, uh, you know, if, if you get away from this notion of, of basing it, uh, boiling it down to the simplicity of what makes a just society and how you can... You know, the, the couple of, of basic laws about how we're treat, to treat our fellow man, you know, when government gets involved and starts to, you know, Ron Paul likes to say that 
you know, I, I remarked, uh, I know Ron quite well, and I know you know him probably better than I do, but I remember telling him how I was astounded at the number of people from the left side of the political spectrum who were, who were becoming excited about his, about his uh, presidential run. Uh, I have my son's uh, roommate was, you know, left of Karl Marx, and he was, became a supporter of Ron Paul. And Ron said, well, you know, I think what the answer is that governments, when they get involved, they divide people. They pass a law that pits one group against another. They tax one to the benefit of another. And the next thing you know, you have people getting angry with each other. Does that make sense to you? Oh, yeah. While you were saying that, I, I was remembering a, a quote. I cannot remember who said it. I feel bad about that. I'd like to give him credit. But the quote is, um, politics has always been the systematic organization of hatreds. Mm. And, and I, I have found that to be such an insight and such a useful insight. Um, it, it really helps you predict what governments are going to do and how they're going to affect flows of money in the investment markets because mm -hmm. that's what politics is, is the systematic organization of hatreds. That's very interesting. That That is very consistent with Ron's view on that, then, uh, for sure. Uh, you have done very well, Richard, in understanding the sort of basic global uh, geopolitics and, and, and how these dynamics, uh, political dynamics, are shaping money flows. You have done very well for your subscribers over the last 10, 20 years or so in getting them into the right sectors. You're not a trader. You're a person who goes in and, and sort of says we need to be in this sector, in this sector, in this sector because this is what's going on in the world, on the world scene. Uh, and I want to get to that probably in the second half of our show, to our, our discussion today in the next hour. Uh, I, I want to get your ideas on, on where the economy is going and how people can best protect themselves. But, but one thing I'd like to ask you about now before we have to break, uh, and we've got another 10 minutes or so, I want to ask you, uh, you have a lot of insight into, um, really into to uh, Islamic, the Islamic world and the politics of the Middle East. Um, you have, um, uh, in fact, you've, you've written a book that I have. It's called The Thousand-Year War in the Middle East. Could you tell our listeners a little about that book, perhaps give them a big picture of what has been going on over this past thousand years and what that means and how it ties into what's going on right now as we see these governments being destabilized probably by our CIA? Yeah. Um, the um, the thousand year war was a, a term that I I hit on. Um, this is like almost thirty. It is about thirty years ago now. Wow. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, you know, thirty years ago I I started studying this. It was right after Anwar Sadat was killed in mm -hmm. Egypt, and I got interested in in um, what really is going on in the Middle East and realized that there's been a war going on between the governments of Europe and the Muslims for about a thousand years. And um, I wrote a special report on that back then. Um, that sold like, I don't know, 500,000 copies or something. Hmm. And um, that then eventually grew to become the book you have in your hand there, The hmm. Thousand Year War. And what I try to explain in there is that uh, you have to go all the way back to the early Middle Ages to understand what's going on in the in the world today, because in the early Middle Ages the the, the new Muslim religion came out of the Arab world and um, went to war against uh, the Europeans. Actually, the Europeans at that time were still the Romans, and um, 
they uh, they had about a century or so of, of very successful conquests, and then they stopped. And um, there was about a 200-year period then when um, there was almost no warfare between the Christian world and the Muslim world, and they got along fairly well together in the context of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Europeans turned around after that 200 years of, of pretty much goodwill. The Europeans turned around and attacked the Muslims, and that was just about a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. And those early attacks about a thousand years ago went on, and they grew in intensity until they eventually became the Crusades. Mm-hmm. And the argument that I, I have always made is that what we've got going on today in the Islamic world is still the Crusades. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether you and I think that's true or not, an awful lot of, you know, many, many millions of Muslims think it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that the West never um, pays much attention to it is we aren't taught anything about their history. So there was this, this battle going on for a thousand years between the Islamic world and, well, let's not say a thousand, let's say for about 800 years mm-hmm. between the Islamic world and the Christian world. And then the American founders didn't know very much about uh, Muslim history. And um, along comes the Europeans, and they say, you know, it would be nice to have these Americans fighting our wars against the Muslims for us. Mm. And that's what the Barbary Wars became. Uh, you, re- you know, in the Marine Corps hymn, you've got the line, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Yes. Well, the shores of Tripoli refers to Libya. Interesting. Uh, that's you know where the American founders were suckered into the war um, with the Muslims by the Europeans. The Europeans did that deliberately. They they wanted somebody else to fight their war for them, and they suckered the Americans into it. Hmm. Two hundred years ago, uh, right where you know we're over there fighting today. <laughs> well, that was. That was shortly after the time that Washington, Jefferson, and, and our founders warned us against getting involved, so it didn't take long for us to start getting getting yeah. suckered in. Yeah, yeah. As you know, since you read my newsletter, one of my favorite lines is, uh, political power corrupts the morals and the judgment, and it did that to the founders. Right. Um, they, they stumbled right into this trap that the Europeans laid for them, and, and they fought the, the Barbary Wars on behalf of the Europeans, against the Muslims and essentially we've been in the thing ever since and and by well the 1940s or 50s uh, Washington had become the spear point of the war between the Europeans and the the Muslims Mm -hmm. and um, it's just gotten worse and worse ever since Um, and in in you know some very large part of the reason is that American leaders today will not acknowledge that it was a mistake to get into this thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned Richard uh, Anwar Sadat and the assassination. I remember seeing that happen, I think, live on television. And mm-hmm. I was home writing my very first copy of my very first newsletter back in October of 1981. Wow. Price of gold shot up $15 on that news, which was a big move at that time. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Um, so... We see the destabilization of these dictators. 
Sadat back then. Of course, we've just seen bin Laden taken out, and we're trying to get to Gaddafi. Uh, we've, you know, several other countries over there have been destabilized. What do you think the end game is? And I know we're going to have to go to break here, but if you could just, what do you think the end game is? What is going on? Why is this all taking place now? Uh, and, and who's behind it? Well, um, I think um, there is no end game. There, the, the government consists of large numbers of individuals, each of whom has his own personal agenda, and the ones who are pushing the war have some personal agenda that is served by being in a war. Mm-hmm. And, and that's all you need to have a war, you know, is just somebody who wants it. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I do not think there's any overall plan here. Um, there, there may be some people who have some plans, and some of those plans may agree with those of the people in the office down the hall. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go down the hall in the other direction, you may find another group of people with a different plan that does not agree with it. So there's a lot of conflict that goes on inside the government among the various groups with their different agendas. And, and what shakes out is what you and I see on television, which is a bunch of American troops over there risking their lives for God only knows what, mm-hmm. um, that has you know, nothing to do with really defending America. Right. It's a war that's been going on for a thousand years. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, who might want the wars? I mean, you can look around and see who's profiting from the wars. You bomb the hell out of a country, tear it down, and then build it back up. So maybe some construction companies, maybe uh, maybe you're looking for energy, for oil. I mean, we do seem to leave people like Fidel Castro alone, um, uh, you know, for whatever reasons. But we go after areas, would you say, perhaps where there's raw materials, and, which raises another question that we might get to in the second half of our discussion. Uh, you know, competition globally with China and other other emerging nations for raw materials. But might it be corporate interests that are that are driving us in those directions? Well, to some extent, that's certainly true. Um, yeah, and you, and you just described it. All. I mean, there there are a lot of corporations who uh, stand to gain in one way or another by having the U.S. in the war, and so they will try to influence various officials in the government to move things in that direction. But that's not the whole story. I, to me, a much more, hmm, I don't know, fundamental explanation is, is the fact that, that you have to see the government as a collection of thousands and thousands of little empires. Mm-hmm. You have a given office in a given government building and there's somebody who's in charge of that office, and maybe he's got ten people below him. Each of those ten people has his own personal agendas, and the guy in charge of the office, he wants to get a promotion. He wants to get a raise in pay. (laughs) And if doing whatever he can to enlarge the war will get him a promotion and a raise in pay, Mm -hmm. then he will. Um, You know, Tom Paine said one time, I thought it was a great quote, that... um, War is uh, so uncertain that there's only one thing that is certain about it, and that is it will raise taxes. <laughs> well, you know, the tax money comes pouring in, and there are people who are scrambling around trying to get their hands on that tax money, and each person in each office is saying to himself, how can I get some of that money so that I can enlarge my office and have more employees and get a promotion and a raise in pay. Bigger salary. 
Yeah, and we might mention that taxes come in, in, of course, the obvious kind where you shell out a certain amount of money, and then the not-so-obvious kind to many people, and that's in the form of inflation. Uh, Richard, we're going to have to take a break of now for a commercial break, but we're going to come right back in a couple of minutes, and I want to pick up on that issue of uh, taxes, inflation, uh, you know, how we can preserve our wealth, what's left of it already as it's being taken away from us through inflation and other uh, and taxes. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to come right back with Richard Mayberry, folks. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. Entertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Entertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CNS. Exchange. Origa Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific Flin Flon Greenstone Belt. Origa's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000-ton-per-day mill, developed underground ramp, year-round roads, and exploration access. Origa plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Origa Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA. Dravali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Dravali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. 